literally I've seen cases where where teachers are maybe looking at a student in this sort of terminology of like Spanish speaking or Spanish speaker versus who the student is culturally or ethnically. It's this sort of false separation of language from culture that's contributing to some of the inequity because our system feels like we can sort of treat the language, but we don't have to treat the culture. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast focused on providing educators with inspiration and strategies to help multilingual learners achieve their highest aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. I think it's probably fair to say that cultural and linguistic responsiveness has come up in almost every episode of Highest Aspirations. It's really completely unavoidable when discussing how to help multilingual learners be the best they can be in and out of school. But this idea of cultural responsiveness is a little nebulous. It feels good to talk about, and I know because I talk about it a lot, but what does it really mean? And how can educators incorporate it into their day-to-day practice? Perhaps more importantly, what systems and structures need to be put in place to scale that impact? These are some of the questions we discussed with our guest, Dr. Shiraki Holly. Dr. Holly is a national educator who provides professional development to thousands of educators in the area of cultural responsiveness. Since 2000, Dr. Holly has trained over 150,000 educators and worked in nearly 2,000 classrooms. Going back 25 years, he's been a classroom teacher at the middle and high school levels, a central office professional development coordinator in Los Angeles Unified School District, a school finder and administrator, and a university professor in teacher education at Cal State University. He's also been a visiting professor for Webster University in St. Louis and a guest lecturer at Stanford and UCLA. In addition to his experience in education, he's authored several texts and journal articles. Most recently, he wrote Strategies for Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning. That was in 2015, and he contributed a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of African American Language, also in 2015. Dr. Holly's first book, Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning, Classroom Practices for Student Success, was published in 2011, followed soon after by The Skill to Lead, The Will to Teach, co-written with Dr. Anthony Muhammad. Those are just some of Dr. Holly's many contributions to the field. You can take a look at his full bio on our show notes as well as on the accompanying blog post to this episode. We invite you to share your voice and perspective on the topic of today's podcast episode. You can do that on our Facebook group, which is Elevation Educators, or if you're listening on Spotify, you can contribute right there. And the question is, what types of professional development opportunities do you think would benefit teachers in developing a deeper understanding of the cultural aspects intertwined with language? Maybe you've done something that's been successful you can share with others, or maybe you have a question for the community. Either way, we would love to hear your voice. As always, thanks for listening, and please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Shiraki Holly. Dr. Shiraki Holly, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. I say this frequently, but this one in particular has really been a long time coming. Well, yeah, same here. I'm glad we finally are getting it done. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. And uh, off air, we were just kind of talking about your podcast, which we'll get into later, and the whole podcast game, how it's changed over the last five years or so. It's nice to know there's so many out there, including yours, that uh, they kind of just share this great knowledge um, for free um, and in a, in a bit of a different conversational format. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different with you to get started than I do with most guests. Um, I typically don't ask people sort of 
how they got started on this journey, but I'm, I am going to ask you that question. It's mostly because of my own curiosity. You've carved out um, a, a really important space, and I'm just interested to hear um, what sort of parts of your journey or experiences kind of led you to become an advocate for, for culturally responsive teaching? Um, well, it's kind of like with a lot of things, you know, you have the long version and the short version. <laughs> so I'll, um, I'll give the, 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 in the middle version. I mean, for me, it obviously like for a lot of people it started as a classroom teacher and just recognizing the, um, level of inequities. And this was, you know, 30 years ago, the levels of inequities and just how, um, my students were not being adequately served and just recognizing that there was a, there was an overarching problem here that extended way beyond what I was trying to do in my, in my classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really began, that's where, that's where it began for me. And I was able to make adjustments in my classroom and, you know, have some success and just felt like um, I, I could have a farther reach um, based on that success. So I, I got into uh, teacher education, professional development, and, um, you know, just saw the power of what, what we were doing, especially here in Los Angeles. At a time, it was with a program called the Language Development Program for African-American Students that then became known as the Academic English Mastery Program. And it was totally focused around linguistic responsiveness. Um, mm -hmm. It was helmed by Dr. Noma Lemoyne, who's my, you know, chief mentor and really kind of taught me everything that I know. And so... I, I, but I, in working with teachers in LA Unified, I saw the power and the impact that we could, we were having, but also saw, I thought it could be done on a larger level, which led me then to, you know, begin to do the work at the university and then eventually have more of a national reach when, once I started authoring um, books. Um, so I've sort of just followed the lead, if you will, and the lead being just wherever yeah. the work is taking us based on our success. Um, but it really all started in Watts when I was teaching at Charles Drew Middle School. And I just recognized, man, you know, our system, our system is really, it's really in bad shape. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story. I suspect it would be, I know a little bit about your work and, and your journey, but I suspect it would be, it would be exactly that. Um, I share with you, you know, the times of, of being a teacher and you mentioned like being able to make small adjustments in your classroom that, that certainly are impactful for the students that you have. There's no doubt about it. But then wanting to kind of scale. And uh, if you're anything like me, you kind of had that um, bit of a, I won't call it a crisis, but, but a bit of a difficult sort of decision of do I leave the classroom and sort of try to broaden my reach? Whatever I do, I need to make sure that it's, it's having an impact um, on students. And you've certainly... Uh, been very successful in doing that, which is great. Um, and I love the way you talk about, you kind of like followed the work and how it was successful. Um, while a lot of people have a hard time doing that because I think they want to know exactly what the next step is. I think we need more of that in the world that, um, and that's, I wouldn't call that in any way reactive. I think that's, uh, that's more kind of looking where the opportunities are to help, help students. Um, of course, one of the results of this was um, your book, Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning. And in that, you know, you're discussing the importance of cultural competence in education. I want to start, though, with with your definition of what cultural competent competence is 
specifically as it relates to how educators can develop and incorporate it into their teaching practices. And the reason I want to ask that question is because I think that this term cultural competence, culturally responsive teaching is one that we're using quite frequently. And I've had this conversation a lot, but it's still pretty nebulous and I think ambiguous and people have a hard time getting their heads around what it actually is. And more importantly, how to actually um, use it and, and make it happen in their classroom. So let's start there. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm just going to go back for a minute to what I said earlier about I've always followed the lead in this work and the, because the book would be a good the book would be a good example. I don't I'm not sure that a lot of people understand when you say that what I'm saying is I never really sought to do this work. Right. It was every single move that I made, including leaving the classroom including leaving the district eventually came based on an opportunity that was presented to me based on someone else seeing the work that we were doing. Mm. Right. So I never, I didn't, for this book that we're, you know, this book, cultural linguistics, responsive teaching and learning, I didn't turn it. I didn't do a book. I didn't do a formal book proposal. I was approached by the publisher and the publisher said, we love what you're doing with professional development. We would like for you to write a professional development book, right? I, yeah. I, I, I never forget the day that the senior editor, she she sat in my session and after the session gave me her card and said, we really want you to, we want, we want to write this book with you. And so that's what led to the book that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's always, it's hard sometimes when you're talking to younger people because they are seeking yeah, you know, seeking the opportunity, and I try to tell them like, your work will speak for itself, and then somebody will hear it or see it mm -hmm. that will then provide you that opportunity. So I kind of use it as a teachable moment, and I'm, you know, I'm all, and I'm always, you know, just kind of waiting for the next opportunity. I mean, part of even the work here was based on someone kind of reaching out and saying, "Yeah, hey, you know, we like what you're doing." So I just wanted to just wanted to speak a little bit more on that. So. When it comes, so, you know, part of, uh, in the book, in the earlier chapters, the one of the first things I do, in, in fact, in all my sessions, is um, talk about, we got to have clarity around the concept and terminology. So in my, in the book, I do a sort of diagram of the historical sort of development of the term and concept, going back to, you know, what a lot of people attribute it to is Gloria Lansing Billings. Um, and, and the notion of culturally relevant teaching and, you know, the, the great book that she wrote. Um, but then it, it actually goes even before her, right? Of course, it can be traced all the way back until, uh, you know, early 60s uh, with two Latino professors who kind of first sort of introduced the concept. So you're right. There's a lot out there. So I'm really big on people understanding this not as one concept but really um, multiple concepts under the sort of a larger umbrella. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, and I go through the different terminology. Like I, I, I don't, I don't use the term cultural, cultural competency because I don't look at this work as skills based. And so I don't think that, I don't like the notion of someone being competent or incompetent around trying to have relevancy or relate or be able to relate culturally to folks, right? Um, my term of cultural linguistic responsiveness 
uh, I like to focus on it being as the verb, you know, the verb of res of re response and mm -hmm. being responsive. And that's what we have to do with our students in a validating and affirming way. So I sort of follow the branch of Geneva Gay work out of a UW Seattle, University of Washington, Seattle. And her notion, you know, she ends her book around the notion of validating and affirming. Mm -hmm. And I sort of built on that based on the notion of I'm, I'm looking at it as an action word. And that action word is respond. We must respond to our students. And so there are other ones out there, though. And I'm really big on people like we're, we lift all our work. Right. So you have you have Geneva Gay, you have a cultural sustaining you know, you have different, different, all these different cultural competence, you know, mm -hmm. cultural proficiency, you know, the, the, the Lindsay work, um, out of Pepperdine. So I'm really big on people treating it as, you know, your brand, right. And I use the analogy of brands of coffee or brands of, you know, whatever, you know, people stick to their brand and some people like Starbucks, some people like, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Right. So, I just want to do a good job of explaining our brand, which is the validation affirmation of cultural linguistic behaviors for the purpose of building and bridging them to academic and social skills. Um, but I don't want to do that at the discounting of any other brand. I think educators need to decide, just like they decide if they want Coke or Pepsi, they need to decide yeah. what brand do they do they want and whatever brand they're pick, you know, that's, that, that's for them, then it, it helps to point them towards being more responsive to their students. Yeah. I really love that point of view. I think so much of my experience, at least in education was, well, we did this for a while. It's not working the way we wanted it to do. So let's throw it out and do something else. Um, rather than having a menu of choices, knowing that each thing we try probably has its, its, uh, its potential, you know, advantages and certainly disadvantages, but we, we shouldn't throw it all out just to do something completely new. And so it's refreshing to hear that um that response from you you know and speaking of response you, you you're talking about the words of you've used the word a bunch of responding to students needs um validation affirmation um what are what are in your mind right now beginning of 2024 um not really sure where we are post covid and and all the terms that we use during that time where are we now in terms of the challenges that you think the, the most significant challenges that you think teachers and schools are facing in creating inclusive and equitable learning environments um, and, and how can they address those challenges effectively sort of through the, the lens that you're talking about, which is this idea of affirmation, validation and responding to their needs. And, you know, obviously this, we're, we broaden out this, 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 the topic from just multilingual learners, but obviously folks, listening to this podcast are specifically interested in, in those uh, in multilingual learners. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a super, super broad question. I, I think regardless if we're talking about it in the context of specifically multilingual or, or beyond for me, it's really about districts or schools first, just having honest, open, transparent, conversation that there are some students that they're failing and 
that's not like the end of the world, but that it starts with that admission and that that we have to do something about it. Uh, I think that's that's where it starts. And I'm not sure everyone is on that same page because a lot of places continue to blame the community, blame students, uh, blame, you know, have all these different mm -hmm. reasons as to why students are failing without, you know, just looking at what their practice and what they're doing or not doing that may be contributed to. Similar. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, um, Dr. Holly, but it's like really what you're, where you're going is, and, and just if I'm wrong here and going the wrong direction, let me know, but like where you're going here reminds me very much of conversations I've had about implicit bias, where it's really, really hard to look at the mirror in the mirror and recognize that you're, that there are some things that you're failing at and learn to correct. Is that like the same sort of idea that you're talking about here, recognizing that you're leaving some students behind and, yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I think Im implicit bias certainly requires that that um, introspection. But what I'm saying is more institutional, though, and more system, mm. yeah. system you know, systems based. Um, implicit bias, I see as more individual. I'm, yep. What I'm saying now is more systems, more, more, you know, and then, you know, after that recognition, it's about, I think, understanding that there's no there's no magic bullet and a lot of districts are looking for the silver bullet that's what i want to say there's no silver bullet a lot of this a lot of districts are looking and you know so they got like oh we're doing this program or we're doing this initiative or we're doing this curriculum but but at the same time we know that there's no one size fits all right and so you have to have variation you have to have modify you have to have customization you need to find different ways to reach different students. Um, and a lot of people, they just get locked in on one thing and then that's it. So I'm really big into a sort of multi-pronged approach um, that can serve all students in different ways, right? Um, yep. so, so for me, it's about that recognition, then it's about a multi-pronged approach. And then I would throw in lastly, um, you know, quality is part of what I call a feedback loop. Um, the professional, the, the professional learning, you know, how people are sort of supported, meaning, you know, supported and then given uh, technical feedback, right? A lot of districts, uh, they just do the PD and then they just say, okay, go do That's it. That's it. Yep. Happy, yep. Right? You know, and like, so for me, the answer really lies more in the infrastructure. And then it does necessarily in the intervention, if you will. Mm, yeah. Right. And and so a lot of things don't succeed. And I'm saying for my work in particular, it's not because of our work necessarily. It's because the infrastructure is not in place. Yeah. To to see it to see it through. So I, right now, as we go into 2024, my focus is more on the institutionality, the infrastructure of it, more so than the individual, because I think at the individual level, we are having a lot of success when you think of things like implicit bias. Yeah. But it kind of puts me back to where I started. Like, it's it's one thing to be sort of a singular entity in your own classroom making a difference, which I do think we're having impact in that regard, meaning classroom by classroom by classroom. Sure. sure. But when you try to scale it, that's where it becomes problematic. Yeah. Yeah. It's siloed. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's these great things happening in these individual classrooms that aren't really being amplified 
uh, or the other way to look at it, the way that I think that you're talking about is there's no infrastructure to, <clears throat> to kind of uh, support it or to cradle it. Um, I really love that that infrastructure uh, term and description. I, we see the same thing, you know, um, with I, I think Elevation's product sometimes, and I typically don't talk about them on, on the podcast, and that the goal here is really to, to, to state a point rather than to, to pitch products. In fact, what I'm about to say probably doesn't sound very good, but what happens is people try to buy it, you know, for uh, for for uh, a magic bullet. But if that or a silver bullet, I would have said the same thing. Um, is that uh, the infrastructure is not there to make it happen? So I think so many times, and we're seeing this now, sort of with there's a lot of talk about ESSER funds and, the, and that and that money um, ending, and and the the fear that I have is, you know, I've been in the position where as a teacher, my department chair came up to me and said, "Hey, we have all this money. We have one week." what can you do with this money and go buy something that's going to be useful? There's no infrastructure in place. It's just me as an individual teacher trying to, trying to think about all of a sudden long-term what we need. Um, and so I'm really glad that you brought that up because those are conversations I think that are happening right now around sort of funding issues and, 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 and how you set up those infrastructures. What is that out of curiosity? What does that work look like to you as you think about 2024? Because I think that's a little bit more, that's probably a little bit more difficult than creating a, a, a philosophy or a product or a tool that can help get to get individual teachers to where they are. How are you thinking about infrastructure and, and sort of infiltrating systems to make it better? Right, right. Well, my work has always been about trying to influence the, the way schools do their professional learning and the way individuals, um, you know, teach in their classrooms. And so we've always been about that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's akin to a lot of people know about professional learning communities, PLCs, and mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to make this sort of part of that functionality, meaning that you have uh, ongoing conversations, you have professional collaboration, um, and so we we do what in the old days they would call like a critical friends group model. Yeah, I remember that. Where um, groups of teachers try, you know, kind of kind of uh, sort of do this work together and sort of form a community around it, and then hopefully that can expand to other staff. Um, so we do great in terms of you know these big professional developments. You know, I've done whole districts, whole schools, but our goal has always been to get to the point with the district or school where we're developing critical friends group. That's always, that's been my goal, you know, in the 20 years I've been doing this. Um, but when you do that, then it, which I like, but it's hard work and it's frustrating. It automatically challenges the infrastructure because you're asking for professional development time. You're asking for uh, teacher leads for mm -hmm. facilitation and collaboration, right? And then all of a sudden, you find out, well, like there's a district I'm working with right now. They don't have any time in their PD calendar yep. for a critical friends group like setup. So then it's a scramble, like, are we going to pay the teachers on Saturday or are they going to come after school? And then things get really, really murky after that. Right. Sure. So you I tell people all the time that this work should kick up dust if you're doing it authentically. Right. People should see where there are sort of holes in their holes in their boat that they need to fill if they're truly, truly going to be um, having equitable practices. Yeah, I love that kicking up some dust. Yeah, I mean you're you're working within a system that is really hard to change 
Uh, and that becomes very recognizable, I think, when when you rock the boat a little bit or try to innovate some. Um, all right, I, I want to shift gears a little bit because I could definitely go down this systems and infrastructure road for a long time, but I have some other things I want to I want to ask you about. I want to shift over <clears throat> a little bit to to language and its impact on learning, which you're as you talked about earlier today, uh, earlier in our in our interview, that's uh, an important part of your work. Um, in, in your view, what what role does language play <clears throat> in fostering uh, equity in education? And more importantly, and I think this is the important part of the question. How can we as teachers and educators and people in the system to advocate for that in our schools and communities? You know, and I ask the question because I think there's an idealistic version that we are all teachers of language and that that is really happening. But, um, you know, when you go into schools, you realize that there are there are uh, holes in professional development, teacher preparation um, that that really aren't allowing that to happen. So what is it that needs to happen in order to make language really play a role in fostering equity? Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's several ways that I could answer this question. I think that I will use what I call that language, language needs to be looked at as culture. Mm. And I don't think that in a lot of places it is, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of separated out. And yeah, you hear it all the time, language and culture, right? You don't right, hear them. Exactly. Even, in, even in, right, because it's it's sort of separated out. I think language, obviously language is inextricable from who you are. It is, sure. is, is who you are. there's not, I mean, there's probably nothing more essential to who a person is than, than the language, right? Mm -hmm. Yet, I think we've treated it in a very isolated way um, that, Literally, I've seen cases where where teachers are maybe looking at a student, you know, in this sort of terminology of like Spanish speaking or Spanish speaker versus who the student is culturally or ethnically. Yeah. That sort of come. So for me, it's this sort of false separation of language from culture that's contributing to some of the inequity because our system feels like we can sort of, you know, treat the language, if you will, but we don't have to treat the culture. Mm. And I, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a mistake. Right. And I see it honestly, a lot of it in, you know, what, what's, you know, this movement around dual language and dual, you know, the immersion, right. All of those things that we're kind of doing, especially, you know, here in LA, it's very, it's very, uh, it's very isolating with that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and on top of that, I don't think we see multilingual, multilingual students as an asset. Yeah, it, it's still seen as like it's a problem that we have. We got to fix it. We got to make sure you speak right English, now, right? Yeah. Versus, you know, to be bilingual, to be multilingual is you know like total badass right this total right it's a, it's an advantage it's an asset but our system doesn't treat it like that and so we still have a lot of mindset issues but the skill set part does the language you use in our world the skill set mm -hmm. part meaning the programs and the approaches and here are all the 17 different techniques far outweigh where the mindset is around yeah we approach multilingual students and i think we need to do more we need to do more mindset work with 
educators or multilingual students. The thing is, you know, when I do when I do like EL sessions or or you know bilinguals, like I did, um, not to put them on blast, but I did um, the Washington Association of Bilingual Education last April. Um, I was their keynote speaker, and the first thing I say to those groups is. You're you're sort of supposed to be the ones that are the choir members, if you will, right? You're you you've supposedly bought in, but I want to really challenge that by asking you within your sort of EL world, right? How culturally responsive are you? Mm. And it it it. It, it goes up, you know, and I'm sort of like, you know, I could have tomatoes coming at me at any moment. <laughs> no, this is this is what I try to do. You mentioned choir. I feel like the first hundred episodes that we do, I've done like 250, of this podcast, we're preaching to the choir every time. We need to challenge that. That's a part of what we're trying to do. So keep going. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I do. And I, it's when I've been in those environments, when I am with the choir members, bilingual organizations, state organizations, the challenge of saying, hey, wait a minute, are you really <laughs> like, really, are you are you being uh, what do you have a, a sense of equity with your students or are you just satisfied to say, like, I'm in bilingual ed or I'm in multilingual mm -hmm. and like that's enough for you. And mm -hmm. people have appreciated that that challenge have appreciated me raising that question. And I think I think we need more of that in terms of on that mindset attitude piece but we tend to get more of the strategy technique do this do that yeah i couldn't could not agree with you more and i think you know the strategy and technique or the um the skill set work that you that you call so e easier to do easier to build easier to measure e easier to implement um whereas the mindset work has always been been really tricky and that's why i challenge a lot of my colleagues who who are coming in and maybe have a little less teaching experience or no teaching experience to really examine the idea that is it really true that all teachers are teachers of language? Does everybody share that mindset? I mean, going back from where you are talking about these dual language programs where people are in the work and doing the work, you know, we have, and this kind of leads into my next question. We have um, probably a large contingent of educators who, again, don't necessarily have the professional training or the, or the preparation work to be able to really successfully work to, to even have the skill set. And so the mindset, you know, might even be lagging as well. But then you have this group of teachers, many of which are listening to this podcast right now, who are real advocates, who are, who are, who want to push the system, the ones that you talk to who really appreciate the challenge that you laid out to them at, at the Washington Association of Bilingual Education. What, what advice do you have for those people who are really need to be the change makers, who, who are encountering challenges or resistance or skepticism, or maybe they're skeptics on their own, like you mentioned, um, what, what, how can we equip them or what advice do you have for them when we're trying to implement culturally responsive teaching practices in their classrooms or their schools or on a wider scale, what do they need to do? I mean, you, you mentioned that that's the choir. What is it that we need from them? Um, well, and, not, and by the way, let me just back up and say, just say like, I'm not, I should, there's a little, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that that those teachers need to be doing more, like that they're not doing enough. I'm not saying that at all. These teachers, everybody's ultra busy. There's, there's so much going on. My question is more in the spirit of what sort of can they do? What tools can we equip them with to help them do the work that they want to do, but they may not have the time, the resources, or 
frankly, at times the energy to do it. Yes, certainly. I mean, what I normally tell the choir is this, you, you know, it's sort of, you have to, you have to be it right. Modeling is the number one way to influence, to let people see you in action in your classroom, in meetings, and just sort of be, be what we're wanting others to be. Right. Um, you know, for me, that's, that's the number one. Number two is you can't be the only crazy one, if you will. <laughs> so, you know, you, you got, you got to get a team, you got to get a posse, you got to get a group that shares your, your sort of perspective, not only in approach, but also in action. Um, when you have just one or two, then they come off crazy and they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. People look at you like you're the like you're the one who's like tripping, right? I've been um, there, and I'm guessing you have too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, but not. But I realize like I can't be the only one because then you know I will get isolated. I, I think that the third part of it though is that you got to understand politics and know how like who who are the who are the leaders or folks that you can go to to help with that politics that, because at some point it does become political in some cases, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. But so therefore you gotta know like who's that eight, who's that assistant principal or who's that, you know, person in the in the bilingual office or that you can connect with to kind of push that button when it needs to be pushed. Um, and then the last one, and I'm really big on this since COVID is, when you know someone is a naysayer or resistant, just leave them alone. Like, I'm not for chasing these folks anymore. We did that pre-COVID. One thing that comes out of COVID is, listen, if, you, if you're going to take that stance, hold on to that stance, then we just need to know and we're kind of going to rally around ourselves around this work. I think we spend too much energy on people who don't believe in this work, trying to convince, persuade. Yeah. So I've been telling my choir members, let's stop wasting energy on them. Um, yeah. Let's just put our energy towards people who are on the fence, people who, you know, feel like we can have influence and move. I tell staffs, if you can keep that naysaying group under uh, 15%, you should still be able to go forward with this work in a positive way. Our system has spent too much time on that 10 to 15%. So I call that group the control group. And we're going to let them just go ahead and do their thing. And we'll be the experimental group. And yeah, let, yeah. Uh, let's do some, let's do some research to see what outcomes we get. Yeah. I love that. Uh, the control group and th this idea, it's probably good advice. Your fourth piece of advice is to let them do what they're going to do. It's probably good advice for almost anything in life. Don't spend too much time on that. And then the reality of how, you know, keeping it under 15%, 15% or under makes sense too. Um, I could ask a whole bunch of questions about that, about how you go about doing that, but I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of restrain myself. Um, I do want to highlight though, the third thing you said, which I think I, I had, I have a cold, so I put myself on mute and coughed. And I think you said you got to understand the politics. Yes. Yeah. You know, a lot of people won't say that. Um, I feel like that's a bit of a, like, um, you know, nobody, nobody really wants to talk about it, but it's there. And in order to make um, change, you know, you need to be able to do that. And find those folks who are who are able to to make changes, and that's where that ground up approach can be successful. It's not going to be successful, like you mentioned. If you're, I'm gonna, I wrote that down. You can't be the only crazy one. I've never heard that before, but I've felt it. 
many, many times. Um, and if you are, you're, you know, you're going to be the group that's, or the person or the two or three people who are left behind. So um, really good advice, really good ways of, of, uh, of putting it. Um, all right. I want to, so we, we've kind of circled around um, and brought up professional development a few different times. We've talked about PLCs, critical friends groups, establishing communities. Um, so, you know, I think we understand the kind of the role that professional development has in promoting culturally responsive teaching, but what, what specific elements or components make this kind of professional development um, successful and effective? Like you mentioned, it's not a situation where some expert comes in and, and then says, okay, go for it and make it happen. You mentioned infrastructure. Um, you mentioned PLCs, um, critical friends groups. I guess what I'm interested in hearing is like, how do we bring all of those things together to create a system that's going to eventually be self-sufficient or does that even exist? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, when you, when you frame it like that, I think that I, you know, I think it does exist, I guess, to answer your question. Um, I've always just looked at it from the perspective of you, we have to have quality professional development, regardless of what it is. Mm -hmm. Quality for us is putting the teachers in the position of being learners, um, so they can have a sense of if this is what if if this is what it feels like as a student, then I want this for my students. And a lot of the professional development, <laughs> as teachers sometimes say, is it's, it's like I'll never do this with you know, you know we're the the. The professional development is supposed to be about interaction and there's nothing interactive about the professional yep. development, right? Yep. So that's just kind of like, um, the second thing is like, we have to teach, we have to treat our teachers as professionals, uh, appeal to their sort of intellect. Um, you know what I mean? It's not watered down. It's not, you know, piecemeal. And I think that's, that's very much respected and appreciated that the professional learning is uh, treating the teachers as, as professionals and mm -hmm. appeals, appeals to their intellect. And then the third thing, again, where I think we it becomes an infrastructure issue is providing what I call a multi-phased approach to the professional learning. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, and getting away from the one and dones, the two and throughs, um, because if anything we could say have, have, and it hasn't worked, vir it doesn't work virtually in person is when you, when you just come at it and think that you can sort of send people to a professional development for three hours or four hours or whatever, one time, and then expect them to come back and be able to transfer it to practice. It's just not, it's just, it's just unrealistic. And I think should be unacceptable, uh, in today's professional development, you know, I think that districts need to make commitments to multi-phase uh, multi processes that help people develop and grow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one of the things you talked about when you first started answering the question, which, again, is like all the questions that sort of ask you very broad questions, um, was, you know, if you're in a, in a professional development and it's not something that you would want to experience as a learner, you're not going to do that for your students ever. Um, I've been there. I think we've all been there. Sort of on the other end of things, one of the one of the most 
for me at least, one of the most impactful professional development um, experiences that I had that actually was only one day is um, it was a very well-structured student shadowing day. I just shadowed a student all day, walked around with my top high school. I walked around to all of his classes, um, experienced what it was like to be that student for a day. And there's, there's some work being done specifically on that from multilingual learners. I'm now forgetting the name of the You'll come back to me with the woman who wrote a book about this. Sonia is her first name. I'm not remembering her last. But anyway, there's a lot of work being done around that. Is that something that you've uh, experienced ever or 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 think would kind of move the needle a little bit in this work? Just like seeing what a student's day is like and walking around with them all day. Um, well, I mean, I've heard of that. It's, um, I think that, it can it can it can certainly be a perspective that can be beneficial. I think for some, um, I think teachers going to watch other teachers teach, um, in like a peer coaching model, yeah, is is very is very impactful. You know, my my thing, Steve, with the with the student thing is that Paul Paul Gorski talks very well about this that we do a lot of things from the student's perspective, but we don't do anything about it, right? Yeah, and so he, for he sure. sees it as potentially, I think he actually uses the word exploitive, right? That we're sort of like, oh, you know, we're gonna have a student panel or we're gonna follow you for the day. We see like how miserable things are, right? And the kid is kind of telling us, and then the next day, nothing changes. You know, yeah. the kid goes right back to, right? So I'm only for those things that they're going to lead to change. If, you know, if they're going to lead to doing something something different. It's it's kind of like, you know, I think, I think we have to be careful what we do with that information. And Gorski's point is, oftentimes we don't do anything with that information. Yep, totally fair. And guess what? We didn't do anything with it either. It, what it did for me, though, we're talking about mindsets, is it shifted my mindset. It wasn't just a building empathy kind of moment. And wow, like you mentioned, like how miserable your days. It wasn't miserable all day. There were some things that were great. There were some things that, why are we sitting this whole time? And what is this, you know, why is this teacher just lecturing to me about something that doesn't seem relevant? It just made me understand a little bit more, maybe shift my mindset about the student experience. So I'm um, interested in a total sidebar. I just came to my mind and I just thought that'd be an interesting question to ask you, but I love your response um, about it because I think you're absolutely right. It's got to be you know, it could be a part of a larger um, plan, you know, part of that multifaceted approach, but um, I couldn't resist bringing it up. Okay, cool. I got one more question for you, Dr. Holly, and that is like thinking about the future. What, right now, thinking about where, where we are and where we're going, what do you believe the most sort of critical areas are for improvement um, in terms of fostering equity and cultural responsiveness in education? And then I guess more important, like what, what steps can we be taking to kind of start to address those areas? Well, I think I think for all of it, you know, if you count it, if you throw in uh, multilingual, if you throw in, um, you know, cultural linguistic responsiveness, and then you know, equity in general, it's 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 about the social political climate that we're in right now in our mm -hmm. country. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not. I'm. I don't think that this work in of itself is political, but. We are in a time, we're in a space right now where we have to really be savvy um, around what this work looks like after the presidential um, 
you know, after November, 2024. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and so I think that it's about, you know, as they say, you know, sort of like storing up, bracing ourselves. And my, per my own theme for this year is like, are we going to get crazy with crazy? Basically, are we going to match the energy that we're seeing in terms of the pushback against any work around DEI, any work, you know, the whole, you know, anti, anti immigrant uh, sentiment that's going on, especially in some of our, you know, some states in particular, you know, yeah. versus nationwide. Like, I think, I think all of that has to be under serious consideration for anybody who is about this work. Um, and so that's, to me, that's the most urgent thing in terms of going, in terms of how we need to go forward in the immediate future. Um, and I was kind of afraid you might mention that we're, first. We're, you know, school, you know, what's happening with school boards, you know, all of that, uh, the funding, you know, some of our main, some of the funding that's flowed over the past three or four years, as you mentioned earlier, is coming yeah. to an end, you know, so it's going to, you know, this work has existed through all, you know, all situations, right? And a lot of times it actually, when things happen social politically, people will say, wow, it seems like that would hurt your work. But in some cases it has helped the work because people have fought back and they yeah. become stronger advocates. And I'm hoping that we're collectively going to respond that way again. Yeah, I was starting to say, I was kind of hoping that you wouldn't be saying that, but I figured that you would, um, because uh, I I think that we could sort of bury our heads in the sand about what, you know, is happening um, and what may happen come November, or we can, you, I think you were you used the word kind of brace ourselves for any potential um, change store up, I think you said as well. Hard to do now at a time when people are already so uh, busy and uh, teaching, you know, as we know, is a really difficult job as it is and has been probably more so over the last four years. So, um, but really honest answer and I think I think important points to make. Um, all right, I just want to let folks know as we kind of wrap up here because we just scrap, scratched the surface of the work you're doing, um, Dr. Holly. But so where can people go to learn more um, about your work? And we'll we'll put that on our show notes as well as our blog post so people can find it. Well, certainly, you know, the website is probably the best place to go, which is uh, culturallyresponsive.org. Um, and that's pretty much everything is there. Uh, we're also on the social medias. Uh, our, our tag is at uh, Validator Firm, and that's one word, Validator Firm. We know we have a YouTube channel. Um, and also, you know, we have a podcast, um, a great podcast, a fun podcast called Outrageous Love, the podcast. And it's really educators from all over the country um, telling their journeys in this work. Um, I, I use it as a way to highlight and honor uh, people who've been in this work and give them a give them a platform to try to, you know, trying to say this is this has been my walk uh, as hopefully as an inspiration to others. And so that's at all the available outlets um, wherever you get your podcasts. Love it, love it. That's a great addition. <laughs> um, to this one too and i think we were talking before there's there's more and more of these podcasts and people are going to them i think for different reasons obviously than they go to blog posts or pd um, but it's really inspirational um and i think that's really really important so um we'll link to that as well um and uh and and people can check that out last question um 
Is there a book or a film or any other resource that's had an important influence on you, either personally or professionally, say over the last year or so, that you'd maybe recommend to listeners? Yeah, you know, when you say last year or so, that's where it gets where it gets tricky. Um, you you could let's say last ten years, whatever you'd like. Right, right. I guess all right, but I, you know, normally when I when I'm asked this question, I always just tell folks. One 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 thing that's always been inspirational to me is anything by James Baldwin. Mm. Um, and he has a particular essay called A Talk for Teachers, which is timeless. It's, it, you know, you read it today, you would never know it was written like 40 years ago. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Um, and so that that's one of my sources of inspiration. It's something that I actually give as a gift when people are like, promoted and they're leaving like a district or something it's like it's like my go-to gift the other thing the other author i'm going to mention because this is focused around language is uh john rickford mm -hmm. from stanford um he's a linguist because i i entered into this work around language through the lens of what i call in my book unaccepted languages which which is known in more of academia as non-standard languages mm -hmm. such as um, you know african-american vernacular or chicano english so on and so forth um, that's how I entered into the notion of uh, multilingualism or bi bilingualism, um, because again, the program I started with was focused on that group because their language was not being recognized in the context of multilingual, right? And so John Rickford is another source. He has a great book called Spoken Soul that uh, really just talks about the importance of uh, acknowledging all communities and the language that they bring, regardless of what that language is. Great. Thanks. We'll link to both of those as well, our ever-expanding uh, library of books. I think it's some people's sort of favorite part of the episode. And we were saying before, we always put out right before the summer, a, a list of reads that come from podcast guests. Thanks for contributing to those. And uh, more importantly, Dr. Holly, thank you so much for contributing to our uh, our community here really appreciate the work you're doing. And like I said, it's, it's a long time coming. I'm really glad we were able to do this. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And I look forward to uh, the future collaboration. Good luck with everything you're doing on your podcast as well. No, thanks a lot. I, I know it took a long time to schedule, but we got it done. So I appreciate your work. And uh, I look forward to, uh, I look forward to continuing in whatever capacity we can. And we, we got to give a shout out to uh, Sandra too, by the way, right? Yep. Yep, Sandra Madrano Arroyo, who made this connection. And more and more, it's less me reaching out to people and folks on my team saying, hey, this person's great. You should talk to them, which I have no problem with. I kind of like that. Right. Um, and yeah, Sandra's wonderful. Um, all right, Dr. Holly, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.